I love those who labor. I sing of the farmers and weavers and fishermen and miners as well. Now all you who hear me, I pray you draw near me. Before you grow weary, I'll sing of myself. I am Peggy Seeger, singer, songmaker, uh, mother of three wonderful children and nine excellent grandchildren. I have actually been given an honorary doctorate of arts, which allows me to call myself Dr. Peggy Seeger if I need to impress anybody. I only use it sparingly. My country was nothing to me. I'm Irla Olinart, and in this series, Vocal Chords, I get to spend time with fellow singers exploring the journey of the voice and the song. This time, I'm with a woman whose extraordinary life and career in music takes us from the folk and protest songs of North America to the folk revival in Britain. Peggy Seeger comes from elite music stock. Her mother, Ruth Crawford, was an outstanding composer. Her father, Charles Seeger, a leading musicologist. Her brothers were singers Pete and Mike Seeger. And for over 35 years, she composed and performed with her husband, singer and songwriter Ewan McCall, who died in 1989. Now, few artists can claim as long and diverse a recording career as Peggy Seeger. From her roots as an American folk singer to her partnership with McCall, radically mixing politics and song, to her own solo work, she believes in giving voice to the voiceless. Today, in her early 80s, she's still writing, still singing and still performing. And she shares her life and love with the Northern Irish singer Irene Piper Scott, although on opposite sides of the world. It's a bit terrifying because as I get older, I'm riddled with arthritis. I can't play instruments nearly as well as I could. And of course, the vocal cords are not as good as they were. Uh, at some point, I'm going to have to give up. I think I'll go to storytelling. Uh, but if I didn't do music, I don't know what I would do. I'm not good at anything else. Mm -hmm. I'm really, I'm hopeless at so many things. I'm a musician, I'm a singer, and now I'm an entertainer, and I love being on stage. And I love seeing what music does to people when it's right, when a concert goes just right. Comes near, if I find I can dare it with joy, I will share it, no longer afraid. Peggy, it's daunting to meet you. <laughs> Your creative output has been simply extraordinary. Many, many hundreds of songs. I think at least 20 solo albums mm. and dozens with Ewan and with your brother Mike. You were born and bred in America, of course, but you've spent most of your life here in England. Yeah. Tell us, where is home for you? I'm in Oxford, actually in Ifley Village, in a house that I rent because I'm a lousy homeowner. I can't even notice if the roof is falling off. <laughs> so I've rented for the last uh, 25 or 30 years. I like Oxford. Um, I'd been brought up in the States, but I left when I was 20, 21. And 
I grew up in England from age 24 to age 54. I grew up here. Crackling, by the way, is the fire, just in case you're hearing it. It's rather lovely. And I've um, no doubt you've been watching events back home in America with some interest. Yeah, well, my partner Irene calls it the red wall, blue wall syndrome. You've lived with the blue wall. Let's have a change. So they take the red wall. I mean, this is what's happened with with the elections now in, in America and the referendum here. And what have you uh, been thinking? I mean, is, you know, that's looking at it philosophically and kind of saying these oh, things Trump? happen. Yes. There's more in your head about that, I, I imagine. Oh, well, I'm frightened. I laugh, I cry. I've made a short song about him, if I can remember it. Trump is in the White House with his bunch of tricks. Trump is in the White House with his bunch of pretty dire bureaucrats <laughs> who are at his beck and call. To think that they are dangerous is just a lot of balderdashing nonsense. What Donald doesn't want is getting buddy-buddy with a lot of friggin' countries who are Muslim or just down on their luck. So Trump is in the White House. He'll tell them all to funny how we used to think that he was going to lose. But Trump is in the White House and he is going to screw the people, screw the climate, screw the earth and then make the world a safer place for Yankee businessmen. Who? Uh, yeah, OK. That's amazing. I'm glad, actually, that I, I got my visa application in the door a few days ago. <laughs> it's probably processed by now. But that, oh. So it's really been on your mind. Oh, my a Lord. A huge amount. I dream it. I'm frightened. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. And it's been fascinating to see how the anti-Trump rallies have been singing that Woody Guthrie song, This Land is Your Land, that your brother, Pete Seeger, sang so often. I'd be interested to know how Pete would manage Trump. Because when we had the Bushes in, I don't think Pete made up any songs about them. His songs were middle of the range and let's make friends with our neighbors. And, and they're wonderful songs, great songs. This land was made for you and me. Well, I roamed and I rambled and I followed my footsteps to the sparkling sands. Can I ask you, when you were a young lady before you left the United States, was your house the kind of place where there was political debate? Not at all. Never. We didn't talk about books. We didn't talk about writing. We talked about singers and singing and songs, folk songs. So we didn't really have dinner table conversation the way we did with my family, with you and McCall. And we had that up the wazoo, according to my children. We had a bit too much of it. Uh, no, there were four children, and it was cacophony at the table. My father just turned his hearing aid off, and my mother dealt with it. But we didn't have long political conversation. No, 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 no. And the dust clouds Although my father was a, a communist in the 1930s, but I didn't find that out until uh, about 1970, 71, 72. He didn't reveal this to you no, at any point? No, and when I found out, I said, Charlie, why didn't you tell us? He says it was safer for you not to know. And yet when Pete turned up uh, and he was in, coming up in front of HUAC, the House on american Activities Committee, 
We didn't hear the discussions between my father and Pete. They cocooned themselves in the sitting room and closed the door and talked about how Pete would handle it. It wasn't brought in front of us kids. Not at all. And tell me, Peggy, what was the music in your house growing up? Well, it was probably one of the best upbringings a child could have, really. It had two parameters. When you look at them, they're musically, socially, culturally exclusive. That's the classical music and folk music. You know, one is based on literacy, the other is based on orality. So in the daytimes, my mother would be transcribing folk songs from uh, big aluminium records gotten out from the Library of Congress. Uh, my father was in Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration. And one of the ways that Roosevelt thought of keeping people not migrating because of economical problems was to keep them at home, involved culturally in their own areas. And he sent collectors in who would actually start uh, programs in which uh, they would encourage instrument makers, song makers, singers, concerts, uh, and praising the local music, which so far people had thought was just throwaway, you know, because they were working class people. What, what was their music worth? It's Beethoven and Bach that people pay for. So my father was interested in that, and he started an archive in the uh, Library of Congress, where collectors who went out to collect this music deposited their um, what they collected in the Library of Congress. It's an unbelievable archive. Now, the Lomaxes, Alan and John, were very big in the collecting, and they deposited a huge amount, and they decided to anthologize some of this and put the books into schools. So they started working with my mother, they would choose the songs, and she would bring them home. And she listened to these songs on these big aluminium discs all day long. You'd have a song like, I've been a bad, bad girl, wouldn't treat nobody right. They want to give me 35 years. Now, this is a prison song. So we would listen to her trying to transcribe that. That probably took her a whole day to write it down. So we'd be playing over in the corner and she'd be transcribing this stuff and we'd just hear it. So it was almost like your radio. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. Fantastic. And there were chain gang songs, murder ballads, women with babies in their arms who'd been left by their lovers and fathers burning their daughters at the stake, you know, real child stuff, politically correct. <laughs> I'm very interested in that because your mother, it strikes me, was highly evolved. Well, there was an area of her music that we as children knew nothing about. The only time I remember her as a composer of anything classical was when she and my father both entered the same competition which was to make a symphonic arrangement of a, uh, a folk song. And my mother did Rissleti Rosselti and Equinoctial.
um, which are both songs about women in the kitchen. And my father did John Hardy, and my mother won. Uh, and it's it's a very nice. I I really like uh, what she did. But then, when I was about 35 or 40, I got introduced to the compositions she'd made in her 20s, and that didn't jive with who I thought my mother was like at all. This was weird music. Very, very strange modernist music, some of which is very uncomfortable to listen to, very uncomfortable. Some of it is almost mathematic. Did your mother impress you? Were you impressed with your mom? Well, I think I must have been because I fastened myself to her side musically. My mother was a bit puritanical. Uh, she couldn't talk about body things. As my father told me, the facts of life, boy, did he tell me directly. <laughs> Tell me, your house was a much-visited house. Who do you remember? Uh, the ones I remember most are Leadbelly, and I would have seen him before I was eight. Because I remember seeing him in that particular house. And uh, we just ran around with nothing on, us kids, because there was a big fire in the living room, and we just lived in the living room. And so going to the door and there's this great big blue-black man, you know, with a guitar case in his hand. But that most likely would have been the time when we were taken to hear him and Pete sing in Washington, D.C. And I remember it was in a boxing ring. We were all sitting around the outsides, and I'd never been in a... I don't think I'd ever been in a theater. I'd been to a movie, probably. The recordings of Lead Belly were part of our life. Good Night, Irene, Midnight Special, and I think Lula was another one. I mean, we were singing Irene, Good Night, the way Lead Belly sang it, which is why I... I can't bear the way anybody else sings it. Anybody who wants to sing it syrupy sweet, just listen to like Lead Belly. Lead Belly is suffering because Irene doesn't want him, or he can't have Irene because she's too young. Because we tend to pretty songs up, make folk songs sound pretty. And my wife settled down. Now me and my wife are partying. To me, sweeting up Goodnight Irene changes it into a different kind of song. So, the Weavers recorded it, 
and my father was furious at Pete. You've got no right to do that to Lead Belly's song. It's not sugary sweet, it's a suffering song. You know? To jump into the river and drown Well, I ring goodnight I ring goodnight Goodnight, I ring Goodnight, I ring I'll see Pete would have taken it, but probably would have kept doing that because, you know, the weavers sang sweet and pretty. That was what they did. But the irony is that when Pete's grandson, Tao, formed a group called the Mammals, he started doing uh, folk songs in a rock way. And he did quite a good job of it, I think, on some of them. And Pete tore a strip off of Tao for doing the house carpenter like that. So it actually caused a serious rift. But my father and Pete um, didn't have a rift. On the whole, didn't have rifts with most people. We shall overcome. He could just sort of take this mm, Yeah, Pete was, yeah. Uh, he was a middle of the road. He wasn't like you and McCall. He didn't believe in revolution, getting out the guns. He believed in gradual transition. In my heart, I We know some things about Pete, and we know more now. But you, you made music with your other brother, too. I made music with Mike easily. Mm. I didn't make music easily with Pete. Although, two or three years before he died, we did a joint concert together. We did three joint concerts, and we began to learn to sing together. Each of us are a law unto ourselves, and we kind of baffle the other one. Whereas with Mike, I could just fall back into childhood. Get along home, and one of the nicest um, CDs I've ever made, which is called Fly Down Little Bird, was made with Mike when he, he knew he was had five or six years to live, so he said, Peg, he said, let's record the songs as we used to sing them. And there's no tracking on that. We just sat down at a mic and sang. Cindy got religion, she got it once before. But when she heard the old banjo, she was the first one on the floor. Oh, get along home, Cindy, get along home. Oh, get along home, Cindy, I'll marry you someday. Get along home, Cindy, get along home. Oh, get along home, Cindy, Cindy. 
Can we roll back to one thing? You travelled a lot yourself at one point in your life when you were very young. Did you just want to go places? Uh, my mantra was, of course, why not? I always said yes, you know. I had two years of college, and uh, my mother died in the first year of that. And so I took to the road, and uh, I did that, and we're talking about 1955 in the autumn, and latched in with a Catholic priest who had a traveling theater, and he took us to Berlin, and we picked up displaced children and brought them back to Belgium, where he lived, where I became the little mother of them for three months. And I was just about to go off to a logging camp with a guy who, who told me my eyes were the color of time. <gasps> and, so how uh, did you meet you and McCall? Well, <clears throat> I was packing to go to the logging camp when I got a call from Alan Lomax, who was in England, and said there's a... TV show wants you there, and uh, he'd apparently mentioned something about England's answer to the Weavers way back then. So I decided on England instead of a logging camp and came to England, fell in love with you and McCall on the first day, and that's it. The first time ever I saw your face, I thought the sun rose in your Fair to say that he fell in love with you the first day. Yes, it is. I did not fall in love with him. How did you know all this? How do you know? Well, he didn't tell me, put it that way. I don't know, I don't know how I know, but maybe it's the way you said what you said. Yeah, well, it's because there's, there's three more years of travelling before yeah. we get together, because I left him. And it didn't do it much, no. Peggy was doing a concert. I'd met Peggy this time, by this time, and she was doing a concert in Los Angeles at Hollywood Girls High School. And it was a radio show, and it was a live radio show. And she needed a come out for the first half, a slow uh, but short lyrical love song. And she phoned me up, and I answered the phone, and I wrote that song over the phone, and Peggy took it down, sang it that night. And I promptly forgot about it until Peggy came back to England when she was singing it now in every time that she sang. And then other people picked it up. The, I think it was the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul and Mary, the Brothers Four, the Smothers Brothers, Elvis, First one after another. I lay with you. And then another, a whole number of years elapsed until suddenly, wham, somebody phoned me up one day and said, look, you're number one on the American hit parade. What's, how's it feel like? Well, it didn't feel like anything, because I didn't take it in, you know. And the first time ever I You just left. And what was that like for him and you? Okay, I met him in March of 1956. We worked together. We tried to make the new, um, the new group go. It was, a, it was a crazy group. 
and we didn't deserve to succeed, and we didn't succeed because it was Alan Lomax's dream, and if he had kept it to only four people like the Weavers, it might have worked. But, I mean, singing like Texas Gladden, Well met, well met, my own true love. Well met, well met, said she. That's where she sings. And with a rolling banjo, wow. That's what got you and McCall. <laughs> That's his song. Well met, well met, my own true love. Well met, well met, cried she. I have just returned from the salt, salt Oh, yes. That's, that's when, the when, when he heard you do stuff oh, like that, that game no, That's over. the first song he ever heard me sing. And that was it. Then, that, that so was it wasn't it. just your face. No, it wasn't just my face. Believe me, it wasn't. Although he wrote about <laughs> being, yeah, being well, he's, you know, apple polisher. If you could have married the king's daughter, dear, I'm sure you are to blame. For I am married to a house carpenter. I think he's a fine young man. Alan Lomax was so central to what was going on back then. How do you assess his contribution? I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? <gasps> Impossible. It's so big. So he was obsessed with collecting. If there was nobody around, he'd ask the dustbin collector to come in and sing him a song. You know, he was always, always involved. And I think you can't quantify Alan Lomax. I don't think so. He is one of a kind. And keep me from poverty. Six ships, six ships are out on the sea. Seven more are on dry land. One hundred and ten of old sailormen shall be at your command. Did you visit Ireland at all in those days? I visited with um, Deanne Hamilton. Yes. Tell me about that. Um, what, was the, what was the mission? Well, Deanne turned up in London in 1956, probably in the autumn. It was when I was with Ewan, and she wanted to get a whole stack of ferrograph machines, recording machines, to leave around Ireland because she was very much in love with one of the Clancy brothers. And she was amazingly rich. She was of the Guggenheim family. And it was a big, heavy, durable machine. And you had a microphone that plugged into it. So she went to the factory and we went with her and she ordered 50 of them, 50 of them. And she had them placed in 50 post offices all around Ireland. They disappeared within a week. The purpose of them was so that anybody could go in, press the button, and record a song. The lark in the morning, she rises off her nest and goes up in the air with the dew on her breast. Like they just go to this place like yep. a booth yep. mm-hmm. and sing away into and it. Sing and sing. And she arranged with people to be there and, and collect the tapes, but the machines just disappeared. They, they were... Oh, yes. People walked off. Yeah, they fell off a truck, you know. They fell off a lorry. I feel ashamed of my... um, Nonsense. ...kinsfolk. No, that was an incredible naivety. Handsome, I declare, and she's far more enticing than the birds of the air. He met with dark-eyed Susan, she's handsome, I declare, 
And he bought a wreath of ribbons for to roll around her hair. Peggy, can you tell me more about the critics group that you and Ewan were instrumental in? <laughs> what was the thinking behind it? We just tried, in the critics group, we tried to imitate it, to find out what they were doing. To help train the voice to do different things. Because some of our singers um, decided to sing Irish songs. And how invested was Ewan in that also? He was, was he more invested than anybody else in, in, the, in that goal of the critics to make group? To make us sing like other people? Mm-hmm. It was a training thing. You didn't have to end up singing like other people. You just had to have your voice so that you could do with it what you wanted. Up in the air with the dew on her breast Like a jolly plow she whistles and she sings so it was actually increasing the uh, set of skills that mm, one, one yeah. would have. And I sing a song called Maddie Grove. Lord and any queen, queen any queen. And he has a lovely way of using the glottal stops, you know. First come down was dressed in red, next come down was green. Lex to come down as Lord Daniel's wife as fine as any queen, queen, fine as any queen. Now, it's wonderful to sing like that. So I learned to do that in the critics group. If I don't die before daylight, Lord Daniel shall hear this news, news, Lord Daniel shall hear this news. It's fascinating to me that it's really quite a deep investigation of your craft that you, you were engaged in as a group. And can I ask you a, li- a little technical question, because you would have observed it at first hand, and I've just seen the photographs. When Ewan was singing, he did something with one of his hands. We are nets and gear, we are fairing. He didn't stick his finger in his ear. Occasionally he would do this, and because that way you can control what you hear by pushing this little bit in like that. You create an echo chamber. And it's a wonderful echo chamber. You can, you can push it right forward. I wear hearing aids, and by just pushing the back of my ear forward, I can hear my own voice better. I'm just trying that there now. I'll try singing. Now move it while you're doing it. It's a bit like being in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah, it, it, becomes, it becomes more present. Yeah. Well, people insult you and they say finger in the ear singing. That's ridiculous. Just find out what it really is and stop all the fun making. So, in a nutshell, it was some sort of way of making the singing more louder, more uh, present. Focused. Focused. More focused. There was little kindness and the kicks were many when we hunted for the shores of heaven. And when you were making radio programs also with you, and th- there was also that sense of we could do something new, something mm. that hasn't been done before, something deeper, something that contextualizes yeah, we the stories of people's lives. Yeah. We weren't necessarily looking for something new, we were looking for something truthful.
Or maybe that is a new car, a new idea. We present The Ballad of John Axon. The real life story of a railwayman told by the men who knew him and worked with him and set into song by Ewan McCall. The year was 1957, the morning bright and gay. On the well, it, it certainly had the effect of revealing more of the truth of people's lives. Would you mind telling me a little bit about those radio programmes and what was the thinking and what was it like? I think you and... McCall and Charles Parker, they were opposite sides of a coin. Charles Parker was from lower middle class, but who had gotten a good education, had been in the military, and uh, was now a BBC producer and considered to be part of upper media. Ewan was from really rough working class. He was from a poor family um, and was insecure Charles had a sense of entitlement. Ewan did not. None. But I wasn't in on a recording for Ballad of John Axon. I was in Europe. Engine driver's got to be in the blood for a start. If it's not in your blood to stand the erratic hours, you'll never stand the pace. And Charles was astounded at how articulate working-class people are when you get them talking about what they do. And what they know about. The old railwayman, it was a tradition, it was part of your life. It went through, railways went through the back of your spine like Blackpool went through rock. Because that's what the radio ballads are. It's the effect of work on the people who do it. And the original idea was that a script would be made and actors would act out what the speakers said. Ewan had a fight, a real fight with him about this. It was still dark when I got to the shed up to Saturday morning. Uh, Charles insisted on, on Ronnie, putting, I think it was one of the recordings that Ron, the fireman, was talking about his engine. Come on, Ron, he said, we want to get finished. And he put it onto a tape and took it down to play to various people in the BBC studios and said, do you understand what this man is saying? Because Ewan wanted to use Ron talking himself and people would listen. Let me see. You're never early at that time in the morning. It's bad enough having to get there at the right time. And they say, oh, that's wonderful. And, and Charles would say, do you understand what he's saying? Not all of it, not all of it, but I understand enough. And that's wonderful, the sound, the sound of that voice. And as I walked in the driver's lobby, there were a lot of choice comments going on around about the weather. And it worked out that they loved that it wasn't plummy. It wasn't, you know, a cherry in your cheek while you're speaking. And it wasn't the usual BBC way of talking or the BBC approximation of how they thought this would be. And so Ballad of John Axon was a real experiment in real people's voices. As I went walking down Peacock Street, no clothes on my back, no shoes on my feet. I was cold But then there's a song I sing, and I've never been out on the streets homeless after being sent out from jail. There's a song I sing called Peacock Street, and I have heard it sung by its maker. We'd 
Aunt Molly Jackson, who had a voice like a hatchet and a life that you would not even want to hear about. It was so horrendous. And she half speaks it. When I took everything this old big shot had, they called me a robber. And you get something like, as I was walking down Peacock Street, no clothes on my back, no shoes on my feet. I was cold, I was hungry. It was late in the fall, I knocked down some old big shot, took his money clothes long. Tell me how long must I look for a job? I don't want to have to steal. I don't want to have to rob. You know? Mm-hmm. And so you approximate it. And this is what the critics group did. You put as much of what existed already into who you were and tried to make a combination of it that would be truthful. Because the problem is that the poor never go away. I did a concert double duty tonight and the first song I sang was very old, The Mint. And I felt it was my duty to sing it as I'd heard it, mm-hmm. more or less. Does some of it, the Shannos, d- depend on the language, the actual language you're singing in? For me it does. For me, I find the language is actually a muse. Mm-hmm. My muse. The music seems to bounce out of the language. But the, 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 the songs, the, the method of singing depends on the actual way the language is pronounced, spoken. There is definitely a connection. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you would, yeah. You would say that. Yeah, I think we get the songs our language deserves. That's fascinating because I, I've been thinking recently that, certainly in the Irish case, that they they evolved together. Mm. They're, they're twins. Mm-hmm. The language is the shape of the music, and the music is shaped mm-hmm. by the language. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. It's a system. Yeah. It's like a songbird's song. It's actually part of the, the ecology where that language evolved, where those people evolved. It's, it's a beautiful idea. Yeah. And I believe you met a relative of mine at one point. And was this in one of your escapades with Diane Hamilton? Who's that? Elizabeth Cronin. I met her. I remember going into her house. I remember seeing her. But I don't really remember hearing her sing or because Diane Hamilton had this thing about when she was collecting, she didn't want me or Ralph there. She would go in and record and we'd wait outside in the cold. And it wasn't necessarily cruel. She might have been right, you know, one person to, singing to another one person. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she got good recordings. I don't remember. But she really had to be in her bonnet about Ireland and about recording Irish songs. She just loved them. She did. Jewel 
Maybe you could tell me a little more about how you write songs based on kind of deep information you gather from people, that you go to them. I mean, I know quite a few songwriters and they don't do that. They, 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 they talk to themselves. But you have a methodology where you want to go to a source, a witness. Yeah. Born rich in the womb. And uh, I did a song about Jaivan Desai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. She was a Kenyan Asian, and she was the woman who became the figurehead for the uh, Grunwick strike back in the early 70s. life is a knife in the heart and And here she was, a Kenyan Asian woman who always walked behind her husband when they were in the streets, and she finds herself at the head of a strike. And uh, I went to record her, and her first statement was, I was born rich in the womb. She said, oh. I said, what does that mean? She says, like you say, silver spoon in the mouth. And so I literally made the words out of her words the way Ewan had made words out of the people that we collected. We called it the radio ballad technique. With Jaivan's song, it was I, had, I hit something different, really different, that was a big problem. Uh, first of all, I didn't sound Asian as a singer. I wanted to sing the song myself. Natural life, good Second of all, I hadn't led the strike. So what I did was I take, it has no pronouns anywhere. No pronouns the whole way through. And it worked. And I put it to an Appalachian banjo. And I played it to her. I sent it to the tape to her and I talked to her over the phone. And she said, I hear myself speaking. Find a new home. You've hit pay dirt. Yeah, I hear myself speaking. Don't cry for the old life. Work brings independence, self-respect and pride. That begs me to ask you another question. That you gave her her voice. Yes, in a different way. Yeah. In a different way. creep behind you, white man. Peggy, can you tell me something about the engineer song? It was written by mistake. Ewan was supposed to be writing the whole script, but uh, he got tight for time. Everybody said I only did it to annoy, but I was going to be an engineer. It was a, a critics group production that we put on every year about the year's news. Wait until you're older, dear. When it happened to be the year of the women, you know, there's the year of the dog, the year of the earthworm, and they all run concentric with all of the years of the men. So this was the year of the women, and Ewan said, right, we really need a song about it. I'm too busy to write it. You write it, Peggy. Learn to cool, learn to move. Well, I was doing the accounts. I was not very pleased. Uh, and I wrote it literally in two hours. And it appeared... I didn't want to be an engineer. I never wanted to be an engineer. A typing is a skill that every girl is sure to need to while away the extra time until the time to breed. Then they 
had the nerve to say, but would you like to be? I says, I'm going to be an engineer. No, you but it's one of those things that lands with razor wings on your shoulders, and you just say, okay, this is it. An engineer could never have a baby. So I took it upstairs to Ewan, and he said, that's good, he says, but the last verse, you know, is depressing. Go and make a hopeful last verse. So I did, and that was it. That's the story of the engineer. Well, I listened to my mother, and I joined a typing pool. I listened to my lover, and I put him through his school. But if I listen to the boss, I'm just a bloody fool and an underpaid engineer. I've been a sucker ever since I was a baby. Well, I didn't know the word feminism. I'd never even heard of it at that point. I was with a man, and our songs were about jobs, mostly jobs for men, and women made the tea. But... People took me up and wanted to hear that song, and then when I'd finished singing it, they'd say, sing us another. And I didn't. I only had folk songs where women are marginalized, raped, murdered, dumped in ditches, and, and left with babies in their arms, <laughs> sent to Australia because they were nagging their husbands. You know, uh, so I had to start looking into the feminist issues, which I did. And I had made several albums of, of songs about the different issues. I just literally took the issues and said, okay, I'm going to write about domestic views. Okay, now I'm going to write about mothers and daughters. Okay, now I'm going to write about rape. So there are probably about a dozen, 15, 16, 17 songs that are specifically about women's issues. The first time he lifted his hand against me he knew the blow was wicked and wrong. Emily's really interesting to sing because you watch the audience while you're singing it and a lot of women, their voice, their faces get thin-lipped and they go very stern and the husbands start fussing with their shoes and looking at their nails and this kind of thing. I had one learner where at the end of the song, in that silence that happens, this woman hauled off and slapped her husband across the face and stomped out. Mm-hmm. Lucky she was sitting in an aisle seat. Yeah. And she just stomped off. When anything crossed him, I got his fist. If dinner was late, he slapped me around with begging and pleading, stitches and bleeding. Nothing would do till I'm on the ground. Yeah, and you can look at these and you say, oh, okay, I know what happens at home. I know this. So that was made from Emily's words, by the way. My husband turned round, all smiling and charming, says all she does is spend and tell lies. He said I was out with men every day. He locked me. You travel to New Zealand quite a bit, and there's <laughs> yes. a specific reason. Yes, and that I... reason is Irene Piper Scott. You tell me 
about that big chapter in your life. Yeah. She first met me, I don't remember meeting her, uh, at a benefit given in Belfast for Dave Kitson, who was arrested, I do believe, with Nelson Mandela. Uh, she was support singer. She moved to England. She uh, was constantly on the periphery of things we were doing. The family gather when they hear the call. point um, she was one of the founding members of our group Bang, Beckenham Anti-Nuclear Group against nuclear power. She and I started boycotting at the South African Embassy. We started going on marches together and uh, as Ewan got more and more ill she would come out with me on, on concerts and we became friends. The arms of in love with her. That was the end of 1988. But uh, we're not really compatible to live together, but we had a civil union and neither of us is looking for anybody else. And we see each other six months of the year, three months on, three months off. She comes here in our summer, I go there in our winter. Yes, it is. I never would have thought it would be something like that. But she's the big, passionate love of my life. I love that song you've done in recent years, Everything Changes. Where did that come from? It's about your mother, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You were so young when you lost her. Yeah. We all ran wild. You could hide, then come home after a while. When I was about 70 or maybe 60-something, I wrote a poem for my mother, and it went like this. My mother is younger than me. She died at 53 with plump red cheeks and black, black braids. My hair is gray now. My cheeks are lined. She sits at my knee, her head inclined to accept my care. I comb and I braid her hair. And as I sing, she tells me things about her new school. As I grew my wings, she opened the window and away she flew. 
I am 82, she is 53. Strange, my mother is younger than me. That was when I began to really, really miss my mother, when I was about 65. And it's the most beautiful boy. It's so beautiful. tell you about the song, how it arose. Everything changes. The song Everything Changes. Time to call me home. A friend visited and she had decided to visit her old home. And she visited her old home and found that the forest which surrounded it had completely been torn down. And that they'd built new buildings around her old house. I visited my old house in Chevy Chase and they had completely butchered the inside of it. But the outside was still the same, the trees were still there. So I took the missing of my mother, plus her story about the house, and made everything changes. Was it a dream when mama called me home? Now it's now Everything changes Somehow The house I live in The world I live in Everything changes Everything Everything You have performed with your own family uh-huh. in recent years yes i have and, yeah. and uh, you you i can see you here the audience that are listening to us can't but you've broken out into a huge smile <laughs> i heard my mother's birthing cry the day that just how great an experience was it neil learned the color of the walls of the room that he was conceived in i think he was a little bit embarrassed by that <laughs> Oh, having to, in other words, you were you were recounting tales for the oh, first yeah. time in, oh, in, in yeah. the public sphere. Oh, yes. Well, it just it just happened. It just happened. It's, of course. It's different every time. I What's lo- it like, though, making music with Neil oh, and I Cal? Oh, l- I love it. We just finished writing two new songs, Cal and me. There's a new album coming up. They never did let go. I love working with, with them because we just tumble off each other. And they always brought me home. Even now, they bring me home. It's a tightrope, because I'm not a folk singer anymore. I'm not a singer of folk songs. I've, I have become an entertainer in what I hope is a restrained sense, uh, in that I know um, exactly what I'm doing at every point. And it might sound like boasting, but at 82, I'm allowed that, you know, to put yourself in the audience shoes and say, do I understand this? Where do I want to go now? What is going to happen in this? In other words, you keep the tension going by the way you think and by the way your thinking process connect with the singing. All those years of home. 
Now all those years are past and gone. It's, it's humbling meeting you, to be honest, because you've just, you're so engaged. It's been nice to talk about some different things and to say them out loud rather than sitting by my computer. And also lovely to speak to a singer who un obviously understands what I'm talking about. Well, I hope I do. I certainly, I tell you, I understand a lot more than I did an hour ago. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, good. And thank you, Peggy. You're welcome. A woman's hand took hold of mine in comradeship until we poured a glass of sweeter wine and learned to drink our fill. Oh, we drank our fill. Long nights while the watchful moon lit the shadows in our room. And the loves that I have known You bring me back where I belong You always take me home Bring me home Bring me home You always bring